Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for another restful episode of True Scary Stories to Help You Fall Asleep. I first want to give a special thank you to every one of you. First of all, for... You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Watching this video and also for supporting me and Interscare Wifey while I was gone for a week and we went on vacation, I do appreciate it. We had a really good time. And I do appreciate all of the kind words and support that everyone posted in the community post that I made about it. Thank you so much. But for now, without further ado, lay back, relax, and enjoy these true scary stories. I've just stumbled upon this subreddit, and I've thoroughly enjoyed all the experiences and stories shared by others. I've finally felt compelled to share an experience of my own, and while it may not be as provoking or profound as the stories told by others on this subreddit, it still fills me with a strange and mysterious feeling all these years later. I grew up on Long Island in New York State. My older sister, her boyfriend, and myself often would walk the trails and the beaches at night, on one particular evening, the three of us were on a walk at a Camp Hero State Park. It was a full moon, so it was very bright out. As we were walking the trail, we stopped to relax and look out over the water. My sister's boyfriend sparked up a joint, and we were all partaking and relaxing. Whilst we were gazing out onto the open water, we spotted a small light in the distance. My sister inquired as to what we thought that was. Her boyfriend said it was probably a light on a distant boat. I agreed, and we didn't think much of it. However, as moments passed, we noticed the light seemed to be approaching us, getting closer by the minute. As it moved closer, it appeared to not be on the water, but above the water in the sky. We soon realized it was not a light on a distant boat. We continued to speculate what it was, and I came to the conclusion that it must be someone's small personal drone. But as the light came closer and closer, the brightness got stronger and stronger, if you know Camp Hero, you know that there are cliff edges that hang over the water. There we are, standing there on the edge with this orb steadily approaching us. With the span of five minutes, the orb was no longer in the distance, but hanging right in front of us. It was no longer over the water, but rather over the sandy beach. We stood there staring at it. It had a whitish purple glow to it. Despite being night, it was bright out due to the light of the full moon. On this high visibility evening, it became evident that that was no drone. 
This light was standalone, no machinery of any kind attached to it, and it just hung there about 10 feet in front of us for about 30 seconds. Then it just disappeared in such a way that it almost seemed to envelop itself. We all decided to get the hell out of there, and that was that. This was back in 2015-ish. I've since visited this particular park many times since, and have never seen anything like it again. Maybe we were all just a bunch of stone teenagers and it was some sort of group delusion, but that night will stick with me forever. The park itself is shrouded in mystery, and I can only speculate that the orb was perhaps a remnant of one of the experiments conducted at Camp Hero from back in the day. Anyway, that's my story. Have any of you had any spooky experiences on Long Island? We're certainly not quote-unquote backwoods by any means, but things still happen around these parts. So this is a story my dad recently told me about my grandpa and my great-grandpa. My grandpa grew up in a very rural southern Indiana, but moved to very rural southern Illinois in his youth. So this takes place in Illinois. One night, grandpa and his dad were hanging out at his uncle's, who lived a couple of miles away. Keep in mind, this is the 40s out in the country, so all roads are just dirt, basically. Anyways, it was pretty late, so they decided to head home and hopped into their old car, going probably about 15 miles per hour through these woods roads. At some point, as they're just driving and talking, they pass something along the edge of the road, standing upright. They both hunted, and were very familiar with any animals or other local people that may be around. Neither one of them really said anything for a minute, and then they both looked at each other and said, what the hell was that? My grandpa asked his dad, do you want to turn around? And he said nope, and they kept driving. My grandpa said it resembled a big owl, or a small person, just standing in the ditch. First time posting here or anywhere wanted to recount a bizarre series of events from my childhood and figured that this was the best place to do it, particularly because I have very little karma and cannot post much anywhere else. When I was a kid, I lived in Clinton, Tennessee. Both parents worked full-time, so I was often sent over to stay with my grandparents who had a plot of land in the vicinity of, but not right in, Mosheim near Greenville. Both of them had been in East Tennessee for their whole lives, in that area for a good many of years. They had been established at their home for some decades before this story and remained there a good time after. Recently, I had reason to return to that area in Tennessee after having spent the majority of my adult life in Minnesota. Being in and around the area, driving the same roads made me reminiscent about my lazy summer days tucked away at my grandparents' house. Learning to shoot on the same 22 with which Grandpa had taught Mom. Feeding fish at a neighbor's stocked pond or spotting deer and bear with binoculars from the back porch. When I relayed this to my mom, she in turn told me a story about a time I scared my grandpa half to death, then lied about hanging out with Bigfoot. 
At first, I had no idea what she was going on about. Then I remembered exactly what happened with startling clarity. New context given by the experience adulthood provides. And no, this was not about Bigfoot or a cryptid. Before we start, some information about my grandparents' land. Their house was on a small hill surrounded by grass lawn. The lawn gave away to a smallish hay field than a wood line. Those woods lasted for a good half mile to either side of the home, and a good several miles to the back. I hated the hay field because it was too pokey to play in, but liked to hang out in a creek that ran behind it. To get there, I would like to walk to the edge of the property just in the wood line to avoid the hay. While at my grandparents, the only rules were that I stay where I could see the house, so the house could see me. I was to take a whistle with me anywhere I went. I didn't take the whistle, seeing it as a badge of my regrettably young age, and the best part of the crick was outside of the house. That was the only stretch where it got deeper than my knees, and thus the only part where I could swim. Naturally, I spent much of my time in the water splashing around, skipping stones and being a kid. One day I was playing in the creek when I noticed someone. It was a man, a stranger on the bank watching me. He had long hair, a beard, and pale skin so dirty that it was stained. I could not tell his age and simply thought of him as old. I have no better guess now, as he clearly went through long years of hard living. He wore no shirt, no pants, only a wrap of dirty cloth around his waist that I thought was a Moses dress, thanks to some illustrated Bible stories. Around his neck, there were multiple necklaces made from knotted tatters of cloth, fiber, and string. In those knots were various pieces of detritus, mostly bones, but some flowers and bits of dark glass. When I first saw him there by the creek, I was terrified. Terrified. Frozen still. The man, however, was smiling. He gestured from his squat with an outstretched arm, fingers down, and a kind of don't stop for me wave. I didn't react, startled and reeling. Then he splashed at me, still smiling. He did it again. I splashed back and soon we were playing. We both threw water at each other. He jumped into the creek and stomped around with me, laughing all the while. He threw walks in the water and so did I. I pushed him. He pushed me back. We carried on for some minutes until my grandma called for me. With her voice, a switch had turned off. The man stopped in his tracks, gaze, fixed back towards the house. Then, as my grandma kept on hollering, he looked to me. He crept back to his side of the creek, barely disturbing the water, then slid into the brush, completely silent the whole way, holding my gaze. Once he was out of sight, I waited in the water until my grandma found me. She wanted to know if I was alone. I said no. She became very tense, asking who was with me while looking around. I didn't answer. I didn't know how. Seeing no one, she pulled me back to the house without any more words, gripped like iron the whole time. At the house, the real inquisition began. I didn't really have new words, the event and this reaction overwhelming my ability to explain. Such silence further irked my grandma, and I was swiftly placed in a corner, held without bail, awaiting patriarchal judgment. Around an hour later, my grandpa came back from work. He was told about my churlishness and was ready to set into me again when I started talking. I told him about the man, 
hairy and old, dressed like Moses, about how we played and then he disappeared. I remember they digested this for a few minutes before sending me to my room. I was happy to go, and happier still, Grandpa did not yell like he usually did when we misbehaved. Later, I was brought out for dinner. I ate in the kitchen with Grandma, but Grandpa called me to the back porch. He was on the swinging bench, looking out over the hayfield, turned red by the setting sun. He had kicked off his boots and put them next to his shotgun. I knew that was odd for the gun to be out of the closet. Previously, we had used it to shoot bottles. Sometimes, I would throw them into the air like they were clay pigeons. These escapades were accompanied with speeches about how the gun was dangerous and only for adults to use. He went through my story again, his tone deadly serious. Eventually, he asked me how Harry was the man, really. I told him very, thinking it was the right answer. He asked where. I told him everywhere like a bear. He ruminated on this and grew more nervous, worried I was in trouble or causing trouble, just wanting the trouble wherever it lie to end. So, when he finally asked me to swear in the name of Christ and on my mother that I was telling the truth about everyone, I said I had been joking. He finally yelled then and sent me back to my room. The family memory became that I had hid by the creek and made up a tale about Bigfoot. At the time, everyone was very upset with me, and I was forbidden from going back to the creek or anywhere out of sight. The enforcement of this rule, like the others, was lackluster. Even so, for a time I didn't go to the creek. In my memory, I stayed away for a very long time, but I am sure it was only a few days, that hiatus feeling interminable to my elementary age self. I did start going to the creek. I took a bucket of toys, mostly Godzilla, and a thick stick plucked from the wood line on the way. I think I was conflicted about what to do if the man came back, imagining either impressing him with my toy collection or clubbing him, or both in turn. When he did show back up, he appeared next to me as I dozed under a tree on my side of the creek. I was once again gripped with terror. He was not smiling, his face expressionless as he lurked beside me, having watched for who knows how long before I smelled him. I scrambled away, leaving behind my stick and toys, coming to my feet a yard out. I stood in the sun while the man watched me from the shade. Eventually, he crouched and started to look through my bucket. I remember becoming indignant as he examined my toys one by one, only to toss them into the dirt. It became too much and I started to lecture the man, telling him about how he got me in trouble, how he was a weirdo, how he stank. At some point, he stopped looking around my things and calmly watched my tirade face still neutral, eyes analytic. Once I had concluded my lecture, I sat back under the tree to pout, having become hot in the sun. I remember the man made a noise, a grinding kind of snort, and when I looked over at him, he was chuckling while he inspected the last few figures in my bucket. I wanted to laugh too, but was more determined to stay sullen. Once everything was out of the bucket, he put one figure, Gaidora, back into the bucket. He then stood to his hunched fullest, took the bucket by its handle, began to make his way back into the woods. I stayed by the tree until he turned, said something, not a word I knew or to this day even know, and gestured with a forward sweep of his hand. At first I didn't comply despite knowing he wanted me to follow. After a few moments he yipped, clicked his teeth, and gestured again more emphatically. With this further prompt, I did get up and come along. 
the man, making approving noises and putting on his smile again. We went into the woods. The man led. But he was naturally quicker and quieter, making it hard to keep up. Eventually, he would stop when he lost me, knocking on trees with sticks and whistling arrhythmatically so I may find him in the vegetation. He never came back for me, opting instead to guide me forward with the noises. I became lost, having only a vague sense of my grandparents' place being behind me. After some time, maybe 15 minutes, we came to a bald. The man had me wait there, indicated by patting the ground before going into the tree line alone. He returned from a different direction, pulling a sled. It was made from a half of a discarded plastic drum and lined with small pelts and smooth bark. On the back half there rested the fly-covered carcasses, squirrels, possums, and other critters savaged into anonymity. On the pulling end, woven pouches were tied into place on it by the same eclectic cordage that made the man necklaces. He put my bucket on the sled and tossed Gaidora in the pouch. He then called me closer with a glottal noise and beckoning wave. I saw the sledge pouches held many odds and ends, dried salamanders, mushrooms, metal bits, glass fragments. From one, the man pulled a square made out of bound together sticks, just big enough to slip over my wrist. From another, he pulled a piece of fool's gold and a small shard of geode crusted with a bit of purple crystal. These he handed to me with an air of business and a few more utterings of nonsense. He then patted the ground for me to set again. I did so without much bewilderment, understanding we had traded the same as exchanging Pokemon cards at recess. I did not much miss Ghidorah anyway, as he was a bad guy. The bucket was a loss. In retrospect, I think Ghidorah was chosen because its dull gold scales resembled something valuable. The bucket for its obvious ability to hold things. The man came back and gestured for me to follow by slapping his thigh. I did this readily. During the hike back, I tried to keep up and pay attention. I did so moderately well, having to be whistled over a few times. I did notice that our path was not straight. The man led me one way and then another, making turns unneeded by the lay of the land. We eventually came out by the creek, but from a different approach than we had left. I could hear my grandma calling for me again, not from up on the hill, from out in the field. The man would not cross the creek but pushed me to do so. I did but did not go to my grandma. Instead, I crept back to the house and around to the opposite side. There I laid the shrubs by our front door, pretending to sleep I was found. I swore I had been there the whole time. When I was sent back to my room, I placed my fool's gold crystal and charm in my bedside table for safekeeping. The next day, I went back to the creek to pick up my toys. The man was not there. However, throughout that summer, he did visit me again, to sit under the tree or throw rocks at the water, or yammer softly to himself. I would bring snacks and candy to share, and he would likewise give me stringy dried meat, which I ought not to have ate, or honeysuckle blossoms, which I still would eat. Taken from my old bucket... He seldom visited long, and never splashed and whooped like he did on the first meeting. At this point, you may be wondering why I've posted on Backwoods Creepy and not Backwoods Weird but Wholesome, I guess. There were two more occasions I want to account. One gruesome, one awful. The eventful one occurred near the 4th of July. I had brought two boxes of bang snaps to the creek. 
The man was initially wary of the little fireworks, but quickly came to appreciate their miniature pyrotechnics. He took the box I gave him gratefully, even taking the empty box, likely for the wood shavings which are excellent tinder. During the use of the bang snaps, I had scared a turtle into the water, into the opposite bank. It sat there watching us from the far shore. The man, after stowing the bang snaps in the bucket, noticed the turtle. With little thought, he scooped up a smooth stone and threw it with force and accuracy to the turtle. He then waited over to retrieve the slider, which struggled meekly in his grasp. One leg knocked clean off. On my side of the river, he took from the bucket a new piece of stone. One side was rounded and fit in his hand. The other came to a flinty cutting edge. Working with deft experience, the man began chopping the live turtle above its neck, pulling up on the shell top. The thing struggled and bled as it was dissected, the dome eventually coming free. The turtle dropped to mingle its viscera with dirt and sand. The man rinsed the shell in the river, then offered it to me. In wordless horror, I ran. That evening, I came back to shuffle the dead turtle into the flowing waters of the creek. The shell itself was nowhere to be found. This experience did not deter me from going to the creek, or the man from visiting me again. However, sometimes he would try to call me away from the creek with thumps and whistles. I would tell him I heard him and refused to move. On some occasions, he would join me. On others, he would leave. The last time, we were sitting under the tree sharing cowtails. From the woods, there came whistling and the staccato knocking of a woodpecker. The man looked up and whistled back. There were a few more exchanges before he stood, collected his bucket, and beckoned for me to follow. I was curious and felt comfortable with the man as a guide, so I did as asked. He took me back to the bald, a direct path this time, periodically stopping to call or respond to the other in the wood. Waiting for us at the bald was a woman and a child. The woman was dressed the same as the man, topless, wrapped at the waist. She was dirty with long hair and a wiry frame. The child was in a similar state, wearing a sack that went to their knees. The man sat on the ground and the woman joined him, sitting in his lap but leaning forward so that her elbows rested on her crossed knees. She had dark brown eyes that were fixed to me. The other child would not look up. I didn't know what to do and didn't speak. The other kid lifted their sack to wipe at their nose. And I learned under all that dirt they were a her. The man made a noise and drummed on the woman's bare back. The kid looked at them still hanging her head, hair covering her face. The woman yammered and swatted at the girl lazily. The man echoing her noises, slapping skin to skin once more. At this bizarre scene the girl stumbled towards me stopping close enough that I could smell her and hear her wheezing breath. She was thin, but not emaciated, and slightly taller than me, should she have straightened up. The man and woman fussed some more, and the girl leaned close and pressed her cheek to mine. Her hair was in between us, greasy and cold. She made no move to embrace me, no move at all, only pressing limply against me and breathing so loud it was all I could hear. During this time, the woman had approached. She pulled the girl back by her shoulder with one hand and delivered a flurry of snaps to the crown of the girl's head. The woman then gathered the girl's hair in one hand, using the other to sweep back her bangs. The girl was then made to look at me, face bare. One side of her jaw was bulged out, smooth skin over a lemon-shaped bump. 
Her mouth was twisted by this deformity. Her nose faced to one side as if affixed sideways and leaked a trail of clear snot. One eye was bulged and roomy. The other, startlingly regular. It looked at me, blank and dark brown. The woman gave the girl's head a little shake, spat off to the side, then cooed like a dove as she smiled at me. I fled. There was commotion behind me. I think the girl was pushed to the ground. I did not look back, and they did not pursue. My flight ended at my grandparents' house, my absence unnoticed. I chose not to tell anyone what had happened, wanting to forget, not wanting to get in trouble, not thinking about the girl, the couple, what was intended for me. I spent that August inside whenever I visited my grandparents. I begged not to be taken, claiming it was boring and lonely. Sometimes when I sat on the porch or went from the car to the house, I'd catch a snippet of bird call in the wind or the distant tapping of wood and hurry inside. My grandma could tell something was wrong and it made an effort to entertain me in town. My grandpa cared in his own way, involving me in his errands, as he never had before. Eventually school started. Classes and friends eased me away from thoughts of the dirty man or the people in the clearing. Time did the rest. I think now that of all the people in the clearing were of a family, but their features, white skin, brown eyes, brown hair are common enough that they could have been unrelated. I am sure they lived together. They knew each other's signs and signals. They used their own words. I know that the Smokies are full of tales of feral people, wild men, and superstition. I also know that they are full of people living in unlikely ways and unlikely places, and that those real people call others kin, and that through the chain of human connection, even a recluse living in a run-down shack is someone's somebody. I guess I'm asking if the people in my story are somebody's someone, or if they are known, or if their behavior rings any bells, belies any known intention. I figured here where the tale would not be discounted out of hand, might be the right place to ask. I was traveling solo around the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and making various stops in the Olympic National Park. I decided to stop in Quinault for the first time and took a random road that dead-ended at a beautiful spot at the edge of Quinault River. There was an ancient footbridge that led across the river, but it looked like it might collapse if I tried to cross it, so I decided not to. It was off-season, and I was not in a tourist area. I was the only one there. It was so unusually hot outside that I decided I needed to get in that water. I backed my car all the way to the edge of the dead-end road, faced it out in the direction I would need to leave, and started hiking through thick brush down an embankment to the edge of the water. There was no path. It was a pretty rugged area. It was mid-fall, and I didn't have a suit since I didn't plan on swimming, so I took my clothes off and got in the water in my bra and underwear. I had a nice swim, but I could not shake the feeling that I was being watched, even though I was in the middle of nowhere. After about five minutes, the creepy feeling was enough for me to want to head back, so I started to climb out, turn my back to the other side of the river, and walk towards my clothes and shoes that I had left behind. 
When I turned around, there was a big, small man standing in plain view, just across from me on the other side of the river, but higher up on his embankment than I was on mine. He was wearing a poncho made of animal pelts, had long hair full of sticks and twigs, and looked like he had been living out in the wild for a very long time. We stood and stared at each other, me in frozen terror, for what felt like forever when all of a sudden he frantically took off in the direction of the footbridge leading across the water. I grabbed my car key, tried to grab my clothes and shoes, but they tangled up in some blackberry vines so I left everything and went running for my life, through the thick brush and blackberries, barefoot in my underwear, trying to make it to the car before he made it across the river. There was no doubt in my mind that he was trying to harm me. When I made it out of the blackberries, I could see that he was crossing the bridge towards me rapidly. I got to my car and flung my door open just as he arrived. I locked the doors while he pounded on the hood of my car, just screaming and grunting non-verbally. The moment he went for my driver's side door, I hit the gas and took off as fast as I could. I looked back and he was chasing after me. He must have run after my car for at least a mile until he faded from view. I was bleeding everywhere from running nearly naked through blackberries. I was wet, unclothed, shaking and crying. Had I hesitated for literally 10 seconds longer, I don't think I would have made it out alive. Even typing this story out again all these years later, I am starting to shake. I felt like I was being hunted. That is the only way that I can describe it. I will never go back to that area. Since that moment, I always bring a hiking buddy with me when I venture out into the forest. That day is going to haunt me for life. I've had many years of therapy, and that experience is still as vivid as the day it happened. Have you ever experienced anything strange in and around Florida? Apologies if this isn't allowed. I got to thinking after a couple of weird things I experienced in my hometown, and it had me thinking if anybody else has experienced anything. Back when we were teens, me and my brother were out for a walk outside of our neighborhood. Where we were walking was kind of wooded, but the houses were still pretty close together, yet considerably more in the boonies compared to our place. Anyways... We had almost completed the loop of the area and were around the bend going towards the exit when we heard something odd. I remember there was a helicopter overhead. Around the time, we both heard this weird guttural yell slash growl, like right next to us. It was so close. It sounded like a mix between a mountain lion, an angry house cat, and yet oddly human-like all at once. We both just froze and looked at each other startled and started looking around for the source, but there wasn't a single cat or anything animal-like about. I was pretty freaked out and practically sped walked to the road. All the while, my brother kept asking me what the F that was, but I was too spooked to talk about it. It was like a primal-type fear in an instant we heard it, and I just kept looking over my shoulder the whole way back. Anyways, pretty benign compared to the other stories I've read on here and I'm sure there's an explanation to the sound, but it did have me wondering, has anyone else experienced weird stuff in Florida?
years ago, I moved from a very small town to a remote valley out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by national forests and not many neighbors. It was just what I had always wanted. At that point in my life, I had been a paramedic for about four or five years, and being an outdoorsy, civic-minded sort, I decided to volunteer my services with a local search and rescue organization. For being such a tiny, poorly funded organization, we were surprisingly busy. In the nine years I was with them, we'd have at least one rescue, sometimes several, every weekend spring through fall. The source of the majority of these calls was the roughly 100 miles of poorly maintained fire trails that were very popular with dirt bike and quad riders. When they'd inevitably get lost or wreck and get injured, we'd head out, track them down, provide medical care, and fly them out in a helicopter, or put them on a Stokes basket mounted to a janky trailer thing that we'd pull with a quad. About two weeks after joining, and with zero training beyond what I had learned as a Boy Scout and medic, I got my first call. A group of dirt bikers from the city had lost a member of their party. For some reason, they had put their least experienced rider at the back of the group of a dozen or so riders and took off into the woods. When they returned to the trailhead four hours later, the inexperienced guy was missing. They sat out again and looked for him for four or five hours, then gave up and called 911. The time interval from the initial 911 call until we had a squad assembled at the trailhead was pretty impressive. No more than 20 minutes, but we were already eight or nine hours behind the ball. We did a very quick briefing, distributed maps, divided into teams, and then set off. They put me on a quad with the most experienced guy, and we headed out. The plan was for each two to three person team to take one of the longer trails that ringed the place. Then, after searching those weeds systematically, work our way into the shorter, maze-like trails that made up the interior. This was to be a hasty search. None of that grid search crap. Just riding around looking for clues. I don't know what I had expected exactly. Maybe a few dirt roads through the woods or something. But these trails were an absolute nightmare. They were extremely rugged, technical trails where you really had to know what you were doing and where you were going or you'd never make it out. GPS rarely worked due to the rugged terrain and tree cover. Radios and shell phones were a crapshoot, and the maps didn't account for all the random trails that riders would just sort of make. The only marked roads were fire breaks, and mileage-wise, those were accounted for maybe 10% of the trails. Why this guy hadn't been partnered with someone or put at the front of the group is a mystery. Four hours into this, I'm caked with mud, bleeding from being hit with branches, exhausted and just effing done. We take a water break and hear broken radio traffic that sounds like the bike has been found, but no rider. It's only a couple of miles from us, so we head that direction. When we get there, the bike is off to the side of the road, along with the quads of the other teams, but we can see them a few hundred feet in the woods. We walk over and find them looking at the missing person, who is very dead. Lips blue, skin dusty, arms spread out like a cross. On first glance... His eyes looked to be wide open and solid white, but when I examined him, I could see that his eyes were actually covered with fly eggs. This dude had been dead a while. It didn't make sense, though. His bike still had gas in it. He had water and food, and he was a healthy guy in his late 20s. Why was he dead? It looked like he had simply laid his bike down, then ran into the woods to die. Mission accomplished, I guess. We wrapped him in blankets then put him on the stokes and took him to the trailhead where the coroner was waiting. 
About a week later, I ran into the coroner and asked what the cause of death had been. The pathologist's determination was cardiac dysythmia, secondary to extreme anxiety. The guy literally died of fright, which up to that point, I had always assumed was just Hollywood BS. I've always wondered what was going through his head. Was he just afraid of the woods or of being lost? If so, why did he run blindly into the woods instead of continuing to follow the trail? There's a part of me that thinks he may have seen something out there. I've heard a lot of stories about weird stuff in these woods, and I've seen a few strange things myself, so it wouldn't surprise me. I've been wondering where to share this. It's so weird, I don't even know where to begin. So I've been house-sitting for some friends in the rural Pacific Northwest. They live up the hills on a long, twisting road, and the house itself is at the end of a long, gravel driveway. The house also sets up against a big evergreen forest. I should also mention that at one point, the driveway branches off and goes into the woods. I have no idea why. I've explored in there before and there's nothing. The road is too overgrown for a vehicle to get through anyways. Or, so I thought. Recently, it dumped snow up here, and I've kind of been trapped, as my gutless sedan doesn't have four-wheel drive, and the driveway is covered in over a foot of snow, and the road hasn't been plowed. Anyway, a couple of nights ago, I was setting up awake reading. I haven't been sleeping well because I got COVID, and the coughing keeps me up at night. At about 11.30 p.m., I saw headlights outside the window. I could hardly believe it. First, it was late at night. Second, there's been so much snow that most cars couldn't even make it up there. And third, my friends are out of state, and no one else would be coming up here, certainly not at night. I peeked out the window and watched as the headlights, instead of turning the bend in the driveway towards the house, kept going into the woods. Um, what? I was curious but I'm also a coward, so I didn't do anything as ridiculous as following the car into the forest in the middle of the night. But I couldn't let it go, so in the morning I grabbed my boots and parka and stupidly left the house to investigate. This next part I genuinely can't explain. There was one set of tire tracks in the snow, heading down the rough road into the woods. I followed them about a half mile into the forest, and they suddenly stopped. There was a large fallen tree blocking the road, and no vehicle in sight. The tire tracks just ended, and no footprints in the snow either. That's it. I wish I had an explanation, or a better ending than me running like hell out of the woods. But I don't. I'll be glad when my friends get back, because it is super creepy up here. My husband and I were on the way back home from Navarre Beach, heading towards the Alabama line. It was storming really bad that night. As soon as we were passing Blackwater Forest, it slacked up a bit. We both saw Bigfoot walking across the road. By the time we were coming up on it, it was almost to the other side. 
He looked so shocked like a deer in headlights. I asked my husband if he saw the same thing that I did and he agreed. I couldn't believe that we had seen it. A couple of weeks ago, he got sad news that our older woman friend that had stage 4 cancer had passed away. Yesterday, her daughter updated everyone with where they were having all the memorial services at, and one of the places just stunned me. They opened a restaurant, and it's called Bigfoot Crossing, exactly in the area that we had seen it. So now I'm wondering how many more sightings. I mean, it's got to be quite a bit. Now I want to go back out and check out the area more. I was stationed in the panhandle of Florida near Pensacola. I was in charge of a team of about 10 guys taking part in an exercise. We were playing the bad guys for this exercise. And on that night, our job was just maneuvering. Mostly walking and driving around pretend villages. Anyways, we grabbed our gear for the night and went back out to an informal staging area to wait around for us to get called into the village. Being a group of young military guys with nothing to do, we started messing around, driving in circles and up and down the nearby dirt trails in our trucks, talking crap on the radios, looking around with our night vision goggles, etc. Because why not? We spot an SUV parked down one trail, which was a bit odd since we were on the military range at the time, but not crazy since we weren't near any of the sensitive or dangerous parts. I drive up next to the SUV slowly. And the guy, setting shotgun, with night vision goggles, says there's some weird person setting in it. He hands me the night vision goggles, and I look over, and holy hell, that person was terrifying. They were in the back on the driver's side. Super tight skin, crazy sunken eyes, thin lanky hair. At first just staring straight ahead, but they suddenly turned to look at us, and I booked it out of there. I practically threw the night vision goggles at the guy next to me. I don't know why, but I felt one of the deepest feelings of fear that I'd ever had. Literally, the only times that were worse were times where I genuinely thought that I was about to die. We drive back to where the other guys were and I tell them about it. Of course, they think we're messing with them, but eventually we convince them to follow us and check it out. So now there's a convoy of three trucks holding ten guys. We roll past to let truck two get next to the SUV and only a few seconds go by and the radio goes wild with them yelling, go, go, go. We haul crap out of there and all agree to find a new informal staging point to park at. The rest of the night, we'd mess with each other about the decent woman watching us or waiting for one of us to walk off alone and just generally joking around. But I did notice that no one wanted to go pee by themselves. Anytime someone had to go, suddenly a few others chimed in too. The rational explanation is that it was some drifter in the SUV crashing for the night, probably at least a little high, tired, and confused as crap about the trucks creeping up on them, then driving off real fast. I took a trip to stay in a cabin in the middle of the woods, high up in the mountains of the city of Ranger, Georgia, United States. 
This neighborhood was 30 minutes up the mountains, away from civilization, and even the cabins were spread far apart. The front deck of the cabin was completely exposed to the woods, so I acknowledged that any animals could stroll along if they pleased. But I stayed there for about a week, and me and my boyfriend sat outside on the front deck every night, very late, and at no point felt in danger. It was peaceful with flyerflies out and sounds of crickets every night. Until the fifth night, it was eerily dark too. The moon was covered heavily. It was about midnight, and all of a sudden, I didn't feel peace like I did those other nights. The forest went completely quiet, and I felt a horrible sense of dread. I genuinely feared for my life. I sat there in my chair looking out into the dark forest trying to rationalize and calm myself down that it was just my mind playing tricks. But all of a sudden, my boyfriend said out loud that he felt unsafe. That's when I realized it wasn't just me. We then both heard a blood-curdling scream, and we pulled out a flashlight to see what it was. Turns out it was a gray fox. They make scary screaming noises. The weird part was that the fox was running and had its ears and tail down like it was scared. This was in June, and I read that foxes scream like that when it's mating season or if they're in danger. Their mating season is winter, and this happened in June. So I do believe that this fox was in danger, or afraid, as well adding to our fear. The cabin has three floors, and we were able to climb out the window and sit on the roof because we still wanted to be outside and relax. Didn't matter how high up I was, I felt something truly evil and stayed inside. The only other time I felt something so evil or like someone was watching was when I had a few paranormal experiences at a haunted house. Georgia doesn't really get mountain lions that often. Maybe a bear, but it didn't feel that way at all. It felt unnatural. I've lived in the backwoods of Northern California most of my life, hours north of the Bay Area. So with that being said, I have a million weird or creepy stories, most of which can probably be blamed on wildlife, but not all of them. This would have been about two years back now. I was living in an isolated neighborhood with my parents right at the edge of a thin, dry national forest. Anyway, one night I woke up at about 5 a.m. to the loud sound and purple light of the garbage truck speeding by. After that, I couldn't get to sleep. A few minutes after, I get up and start walking down to the kitchen for a midnight, or I guess early morning, snack. Out of boredom and insomnia, I decide to go into the backyard. It was an unusually warm, dry night for the season, and it felt nice to get outside, but something caught on in the corner of my eye. I looked up to see this huge ball of light in the sky, completely still, just a little bit above the neighbor's roof. I stand and stare for about 30 seconds to a minute and run back inside completely freaked out. Does anyone know what this could be? It was completely clear and in Northern California, not a place for weather. So I've ruled out ball lightning and I'm kind of stumped.
So here's a little less backwoods, but more country roads of a paranormal story. Every summer, my family and some close friends would all travel up from Southern California to the Eastern Sierra Nevada mountains along the California-Nevada border to the town of Bridgeport. If you've ever been, it's a super cool area. Big biker route to Reno Tahoe. Excellent outdoor camping and hiking into Yosemite high country, rich in wildlife. Crazy old history with native tribes and the gold rush of the West. Has Bodie Ghost Town nearby. And my favorite is the world-class trout fishing. Mark Twain even once stayed in the town way back in the day, which I thought was cool. The town is small and has your typical 20-building Main Street USA to match the field. All surrounded by rivers, lush meadows with cattle and horse ranches, and absolutely gorgeous wooded snow-capped mountains. We would often camp up near Twin Lakes, just outside of town about 10 miles, but always made a point to get to town for dinner at this bar, Reno's for pizza and beer, at least once during the trip. So one night we do this, and afterwards we're on our way back to camp at twilight. Just light enough to make out the peaks on the horizon, but still densely dark with billions of stars out in force. Now this road back to the camping area would zigzag through the square-cut properties of ranch land. It's a narrow two lanes edged by barbed wire and an irrigation canal, and minimal streetlights, if any at all. Literally can only think of one installed by the dude ranch out here. So... We drive back to camp, having to use our brights due to the dark, and making sure to keep an eye out for deer. And when we finally pull into camp, my mom immediately asks, Did you see that kid in the swimsuit on the side of the road? Perplexed and a little amused by the idea, I say, No, where was this? On the side of the road near the cows, he was shirtless walking along the road. I had been driving behind her and my dad. There is no way I could have missed this had someone been there. Nobody in our car saw him, and my dad said that he didn't either when she initially saw him. Not shocking for my dad, though. However, also not shocking would be my mom seeing something paranormal. It always seemed to follow her, and she was dead, excuse the pun, serious. Even described the color of the shorts, his hairstyle. Said he was walking the same direction we were traveling, so she couldn't see his face and had to be in his 20s. So we half-jokingly jumped to that conclusion that maybe it was in fact a ghost. After all, it was dark and late. Nobody else had seen him. And even in the summer, the Sierras are high enough in elevation and have crazy enough weather to easily kill someone who wasn't prepared for the cold night. Especially shirtless in swim trunks. On a clear night in August, I've woken up to the teens for temperature. And where she was describing was in the literal middle of nowhere in these fields. It takes us about 20 minutes just to drive it at a good speed, let alone walk to camp in the dark. But I guess anything is possible. The next morning, we get up to learn my idiot friend, same one who got scratched in a previous post I wrote, left the cooler out after the rest of us went to bed, and a bear got a buffet out of us. So we decided that we'll make the most of it and go back to town for supplies, some further fishing spots, and get in dinner again. This time... On the way back to camp, I'm driving in front of my parents, zigging and zagging through the fields, when all of a sudden there was a bright set of headlights right on my butt. Looking back, I could tell this had to be some sort of lifted truck, maybe a Bronco or similar rearing up on my SUV. So close at times, I thought we were going to get rammed. I started speeding up a little at first, but this car stays right on me. 
I'm starting to get annoyed and concerned. After all, this was a two-lane road at night that anyone wanting to pass could very easily and safely do so. And there isn't any area you could really pull over without risking pulling into a ditch and getting stuck. So I continue speeding up. But I'm getting concerned because I know the hills are coming up and there are deer by the thousands in this area. But this car's lights keep pressing. My wife, then girlfriend and friends, start getting a little freaked out as well. Thinking about the backwoods BS butthole of a human being that is pulling this. And this continues through the fields until I get to the final turn before it goes from meadows to woods. And I get a really heavy gut feeling. Almost like a scream in my head saying slow the F down. So do or die, I start pressing the brakes. Hard fully expecting this truck to ram us. As I do this, we're coming around the corner. And sure enough, there's a pack of six or so deer in the middle of the road. I was immediately a little shaken up. It's always a little startling when you see animals out of the dark while driving, especially big ones. And then it dawns on me that I'm not being blinded anymore, and we definitely didn't get hit. I look back in the mirror and the lights are gone. Just gone. No dust in the rear brake lights from a vehicle pulling off the road. Nothing screaming by us in the other lane. And no road for them to even have turned off on. Headlights lighting up the tree or area. And then I see my folks coming, driving up right behind us. All of us are dumbfounded trying to figure out where this person went. The deer clear the road, and we make the rest of the drive to camp. And adrenaline immediately gets me a bit irritated. So I start ranting off about how stupid this guy was and how we could have died. Blah, blah, blah. Really making everyone feel good. When we get out of the cars, my mom immediately starts giving me the typical parent talk. But I get even more angry when she calls me an idiot for taking off like that on such a dangerous road in the dark. And how lucky I am to have not killed us all with those deer. And how I needed to be more careful, etc. Well, if that butthole hadn't been riding my butt, it wouldn't have been such an issue, I say. What are you talking about? She responds. There wasn't anyone behind you. Oh, how the tables had turned. Luckily, my wife and friends had experienced everything with me, and they start chiming in about the truck, and I start talking about how I finally had enough and listened to my gut and reason, deciding to slow down just as we come to find the deer and how the truck was just gone. It gave my mom chills, and she apologized but told me to be careful next time, but then started laughing and saying how weird the trip had been. I'll give this to my mom. She never did call us crazy for what we experienced in life which is something I think a lot of parents neglect to do for their kids. It's funny, because I always heard similar experiences from country towns back east, or folklore of ghost trucks, and thought how stupid it sounded. But now, after experiencing it, holy crap is it dangerous. Plain dangerous. I'd never wish that on anyone. This road hasn't given us any issues before or since. But I'll admit, I drive it with a lot more caution now. I always wonder if the shirtless guy and the truck were somehow connected, but never found out anything about it. Only God knows, I guess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Scary Backwoods Stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you so much for listening. Have an excellent rest of your night, everybody. Good night.